Okay, welcome back to my channel, Maybe Between the Pages. My name is Taylor, and today we have another wonderful episode of Page Chewing with my two co-hosts. It's been a long time since the three of us have been together, so very excited the three of us are here. <laughs> time zones worked out, so we have PL and Steve with me, as well as three wonderful guests. We have J.D. Evans or Jen here with us, E.G. Radcliffe, and Tony Dejabo. Everyone is a very celebrated indie or self-pub author. Very excited to talk to everyone today. Uh, so so if we can just maybe do a little self-introduction as usual uh, to go around the circle. Maybe if we could start with Jen and then go around. Okay. That works, the guests first. Sure, sounds good. So I'm um, Jen, I write under JD Evans and um, I'm known for my Mages of the Wheel series. The first one of which is Rain and Ruin, which recently won SPF 07. They're fantasy romance. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That's me. I'm E.G. Radcliffe. I'm the author of the young adult fantasy series, The Coming of Aid, um, which is a trilogy. Um, just finished up the last book a year and a half ago, but my sense of time is pretty skewed. That's me. Hi everyone, I'm Tony DeBaggio and I'm the author of In the Shadow of Ruin. It's the first in the trilogy called the Fractured Kingdom series. Oh. And I am Steve from Steve Talks Books, and I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> I'm P.L. Stewart. I'm the author of the Drow Kingdom Saga, and uh, I'm honored to be a co-host of Patreon with my wonderful friends, Taylor and Steve. And again, like Steve, I'm just happy to be here. Great. Thanks, everyone. We have a little comment in the chat here from John. Oops, sorry about that. Let me pull it back up. I'm actually alive early today for once in my life. So <laughs> hey, John. Thanks for coming out, buddy. <laughs> yeah, appreciate you coming by. Um, yeah, I'm not a morning person either, so I feel that comment <laughs> viscerally. <laughs> um, also want to uh, thank everyone who came by or has come by so far today. Uh, we had a little bit of a time mix up because today is the time change uh, in some countries and not in others. So I apologize for anyone that comes in later or watches it later. If the times got mixed up for the start time. That was yours truly. I'll take that on. But um, I hope that everyone can kind of pop in at some point during this chat that wanted to. Um, but as usual with page chewing, we like to start with kind of a, a general question or theme first, and then we'll see where that takes us. So with the three authors that we have here today, a theme that really goes through their work and that you see in reviews uh, of the books as well is that all of your stories really take fantasy into a new zone, into a new place, uh, whether it be a new setting, uh, a new type of magic, a new uh, or blending genres together uh, to create a new feeling of the fantasy world. All of your stories really seem to do that. And we wanted to kind of pick your brains today and see if that was an active choice because we are seeing that kind of trend in fantasy in recent years that is shifting and changing. And there's a lot more different types of stories available for people. And we here wanted to know if that was an active choice on your part or just kind of naturally happened. You know, how did that kind of element of your story come to be? Anyone can take the question who would like to, <laughs> no pressure. I guess for me, um, I'm on you know the younger end of this particular authorial generation. Um, so I don't have a ton of memory of 
the evolution itself because it was kind of happening while I was a part of it. Um, when I think of older fantasy, I think of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and T.H. White and all that, which is all very epic style. Um, and I, I think that, you know, market-wise, not a lot of people are looking for that. Um, but I'm not sure that it even belongs quite in the same genre because it is fantasy. It is this beautiful world building, these incredible characters, but um, much of the fantasy that I read today is, you know, it might be fantastic, but it's not at all comparable to reading Tolkien. It's just a very different experience. Yeah, I think similarly for me, um, so with the high fantasy um, that everybody is, is known to like and enjoy, I think over the years that slowly changed slightly because maybe because it's been a bit diluted in some respects, maybe. Um, so me personally, I think it was having a new take on what fantasy is as it is to me and how I can sort of evolve it and make it not so much high fantasy, but still have the element of fantasy in it, in my writing. So I think that's how it sort of transitioned to me. Um, so I'm going to take a stab that I'm probably the oldest author here. <laughs> um, well, maybe not PL, but of the, of the, of the three of us that have spoken so far. So I, um, I grew up with things like Dragonlance and um, Mercedes Lackey and uh, Tamara Pierce and, um, the, you know, Tolkien and um, the others that were mentioned. Those are old school fantasy and Tolkien could arguably be considered the father of high fantasy. Um, but I think what you see now is a reflection of just what happens with any sort of um, entertainment. So the tastes change, the influences change. People have been watching TV for a very long time now and um, consuming entertainment in a different format. And so books have changed to reflect that. You're not gonna have a lot of people that are going to pick up a book, like a Tolkien book, and really be willing to sit through songs and long descriptive paragraphs of um, trees, <laughs> you know, and so I also think particularly in things like YA or the fantasy romance, you get a lot of influence from people that read fantasy that grew up with a very robust YA fantasy selection. I did not grow up with that. There was some, but not much. And I was reading adult fantasy, right? So that's what influences my writing. But you go just a couple years younger than me, and they grew up with an enormous selection of fantastic YA books. And a lot of them had romance in them, even just a tiny bit. And so you'll see that now in fantasy. And I also think that there's a pretty big influence now from fan fiction. So a lot of people were reading fan fiction of their favorite shows, of their favorite worlds and books. And so they have a different expectation going into reading of what's added in world building and what's assumed and what's not. And I think it's affected the way that you look at a book and the settings and things. And they kind of expect a sort of different fantastical than maybe I did when I was growing up. So that's, that's what I think happened. <laughs> 
Yeah, you make some really good points there, just talking about the evolution over time, you know, like, and, and the influences that we as readers have, right? So it's not just right. influences on the, on the authors, but the influences on the readers and what they expect. Right, and authors are readers, and you write what you want to read, what you enjoy reading, and so those things kind of build on each other, and then, and then culturally, we have a lot of wonderfully new inputs into fantasy. It's not just you know, um, medieval, um, Anglo-Saxon, uh, mm -hmm. settings and, you know, um, cultures. And so that obviously is going to change the face of fantasy as well, pretty broadly. And as always, of course, you know, literature and writing is going to address what people want to talk about societally. So, um, even if it's not a complete genre bend, we are definitely seeing fantasy touching on different themes that, you know, older books would never have necessarily thought of, um, you know, be that like gender, sexuality, race, any of those. That's definitely a good point. And I, I think nowadays people want that, like you said. Mm -hmm. So it's some, it's, well, not everyone. I think it depends on the mood of reading, you know, what, what mood you're in and, and who your audience is. But I do think that there's a desire for more types of stories nowadays. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a space for that, which is really nice to see. Um, but mm -hmm. something that stuck out in kind of all of your answers to me was the words high fantasy really was in all of your answers. And maybe I'm outing myself as a complete fraud, but I don't think I have a working definition of high fantasy in my head. I have like an image of it or a concept of it, but you know, it kind of stuck out to me in all of your answers, especially Tony, you said, you know, you're not necessarily aiming for the high fantasy. Um, and so for me, I'm kind of curious what that definition is, that working definition is for you guys, because I'm not, sh I, I just realized I'm not sure I have one. So typically, go ahead, Tony. No, you, no, you go ahead, you go ahead. No, all I was going to say was typically high fantasy is going to be dragons and elves and dwarves and big epic plot lines and saving the world. That's high fantasy. Epic fantasy is saving the world. You may be missing some of those races, you know, the kind of classic fantasy races that come from Tolkien. Um, but there's still that big overarching plot. So that's kind of the differentiation between those in my mind. I mean, everybody probably has their own little definition, um, but that's generally when I'm talking high or epic, that's what I mean. And it's, you, it's, almost always a second world setting you're not going to see you're not going to have somebody call a um urban fantasy a high fantasy because it's in an urban contemporary setting so typically the other identifier of a high fantasy is going to be that second world setting yeah, you took the words out of my mouth you? okay yeah. <laughs> sorry <laughs> that's what i was going to say yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So the main tenets are second world setting, having some of those traditional races that you would imagine and saving the world, kind of like an epic quest. Those big plots. Yeah. It's not necessarily castle intrigue. It's like I would call Game of Thrones an epic fantasy, but not a high fantasy. And some I people see. might disagree. Like I said, that line is a little blurry, but in general, those are the those are the trades, yeah. I see, I see. Huh. 
Interesting. Just yeah, to, right uh, now, my computer, you guys are all propped up on the Game of Thrones books right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, they make good. They're good and sturdy. Yeah, that'll, yeah. That'll, that'll give you some height. <laughs> just uh, I just want to touch on EG's point a minute ago about topics that fantasy books cover that they wouldn't have in years past. And I think that's a reflection of before, you know, depression was the thing of it was like taboo, like we don't talk about it. But now we're a lot more open with that with those topics, and we talk we're we're able to talk about them openly, and and we feel safe talking about them now. So I think that's part of it too, you know, cultural cultural shifts that we've had. And I think fantasy and science fiction are known for that. They can always, whereas maybe like a contemporary novel might not be able to because it has to operate within the bounds of what's popularly appropriate to talk about. But science fiction and fantasy, I've always kind of thought of as like a funhouse mirror. Mm-hmm. So it can it can look at something and kind of highlight the absurdity so mm-hmm. you can look at things like culture and um racism and um you know uh extremism and forms you can look at um sexism like all those things you can put it in a different setting and you can take it out of the cultural um, bowl that it lives in and examine it from a different angle. And that's something that fantasy's always been able to push a little further than like contemporary literature, I think, because it's fantastical, because you take it out of context. I also think, you know, that there's an element of fantasy that's always been very accessible for the nerddom and the people who are, you know, not necessarily right down the mainstream, um, which makes it very appealing for a, a you know, huge mass of very diverse people, you know, who want to have their stories told and who want to read about themselves, um, you know, through these fantasy lenses. Um, you know, if you go to a Renaissance fair, you can, you gotta get a broad slice of life there. And I feel like that's the kind of people who have always, you know, been the main constituents of the genre. Yeah. Oh man, Renaissance Fair. I haven't been to one of those years. years. <laughs> I love that. Sorry, no, I was uh, I was just brought to mind. I was uh I was over at Miles Cameron, the authors, uh at a barbecue in his backyard on Friday. I was there and you know, as you know, he's a he's a quite a well known uh reenactor. And you know, we were there back there playing with swords and it was fantastic. Thinking about what EJ was saying about Renaissance fairs, but um, my, sorry, did a bit of a tangent there, but um, I think I've had the benefit. I'm not sure if Taylor and Steve have been able to read all of uh, JD and uh, EG and Tony's work. I've read some of um, some of JD's, I've read most of EG's, and I've read Tony's book at all. Just phenomenal, phenomenal books, very different. Um, but I just wondered from each of you, so we're talking about this high fantasy, epic fantasy, kind of putting things in, in almost silos in a way, but but not exactly. Well, how would you, can you tell, can each of you tell um, the audience and for those who haven't read your fantastic books a bit about them and, and how, how would you classify your own work? Do you put them in a particular category? You know, I know that, you know, for me, I, I you know, um, I guess just in some ways I do when I think about each of your works, but that may be totally wrong. That's just my personal, you know, um, my, my personal thoughts, but I'd love to hear what each of you think about your own work and maybe describe it a bit. 
you want me to start off? I'll just go. I'll just, I'll just jump in there. Um, so I would describe mine as epic fantasy romance. There's a, there's a very much a strong romance plot. It is not a side plot. And, um, but it is epic. So you've got that second world setting. You have a lot of politics. Um, and there's sort of a big plot line that runs. So my series will eventually someday be six books and the plot, the fantasy plot runs throughout. So when you see a big plot like that throughout a number of books, that's going to typically fall into an epic category. So that's, that's what I would call mine. I think for mine, I know what I categorize it as under Amazon, you know, to be sorted into those categories, but um, I've always struggled personally to define mine in my head because the first two books are very small scale. They're very character driven. There's romance, but it's like the fantasy element is interwoven, but it's not really the main driver of the plot. The third book opens up the world. It gets a lot bigger. There's more characters. There's more politics. Um, and the fantasy element is a much more powerful driving force instead of sort of a background influence. Um, so I'm not actually sure what to call that. Uh, it's it's a mishmash of different things that I liked growing up, all just kind of in an aggregate, I suppose. What would you call it? She's throwing I, it back on you, but yeah. Honestly, um, I when I read your work, EG, and you know how much I love it, it, it reads almost like, uh, when I think of fairy tales, like, mm. um, you know, I, I know it's not anything like that, but you know, Hansel and Gretel, Gretel you know, uh, I just, I just, it has this fairy tale element to me, yet it's, it's very mature, right? Mm. The, the writing is exceptional and the, and the plot is very mature and there's some, it's extremely poignant. It will, it'll rip your heart out. Like, the, like your books just, they really hit me in the feels. And, um, but yeah, but if I was going to categorize it otherwise, it almost feels like a fairy tale. It feels like that. Yeah. <laughs> that works. Yeah, so I think for me, I'm sort of similar to EG. I very much struggled to define the book because um, I tend to gravitate towards historical fiction. That's that's my main that's what I read essentially. So I first started off with the thought that this would be a historical fantasy novel, but then it's also got elements of fantasy. There's, a, there's elements of magic, magical realism, there's folklore, a lot of folklore, um, and it touches on mythology and things like that. So I, till this day, I still don't know what to categorize it, but I think if I had to put it under a heading, it will probably be historical fantasy. But then again, a lot of people that have read the book have described it under several genres. So I'm still like, okay, <laughs> it's yeah. sort of historical fantasy, probably. That's 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 what I think. I don't know, PL, same question that EJ asked you. What yeah, you I would agree because I feel that I've read a lot of his. I, I too am a big historic uh, fan, and I've also read a lot of historical fantasy. And the best historical fantasy feels like any book, any fantasy book, feels like it's real, but more specifically with historical fan fantasy, the best historical fantasy feels like this is simply, you're reading history. However, you know, you've added some fantastic elements and that that's how I feel when I read your book, which was fantastic. It feels to me like it's happened and that perhaps 
because I, as the reader, obviously not having the same perspective because this happened in the past, I didn't see the magic that occurred that these these characters experienced. I wasn't there to, you know, um, you know, see what the shamans did or, you know, but but yet that actually happened and now they're telling me that, right? They're adding that element. So that's what I loved about one of the things I loved about, about your book, but I would definitely say historical fantasy. You're speaking my language though with folklore and mythology. I am all <laughs> over that. I've been your book has been on my TBR, Tony, for so long. It was on my TBR this month. And I'm a failure as a reader this month, so I didn't get to it. But you, I mean, I was already planning to read it, but hearing folklore and mythology, I am all in for that, especially if it's in a historical context. It sounds great. So I hated history in school, but it's interesting. I found that if I read historical fantasy, which is not surprising as I'm a fantasy lover, that really helps me, you know, kind of get over the uh, feeling I had whenever history is in, a, in the name of something. It's a really interesting book. I did not. I can't remember dates oh. for the life of me. <laughs> oh, to it. Yeah, well, hopefully I'll get over that in my later age. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I think history is presented so dryly in a lot of academic settings. And then when you That's look at fair. it through a lens of fantasy, um, you get people to care about and stories mm -hmm. that matter emotionally. And so it can make it a lot more vibrant and interesting instead of just the timeline chart <laughs> of what happened and, you know, from 1400 to 1500 and, you know. Yeah. A little bit more say into like what kind of historical area you're interested in. Like if you're not into the American Revolution, you're going to find it real boring, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and some of the best, some of my favorite, and perhaps this is me me liking stuff that may or may not be as dry because history was was my was my minor, and and it, I, I'm a big history buff. I consider myself a big history buff. Is um, you know uh, books like um, Fire and Blood, which the current House of the Dragon is based on, and The Cimmerillion, which are two of my favorite books. That you know, uh, as fantasy books because they are, you know, they, they typically read like these, these, these large annals of, of the history of these worlds that these authors created. I found them fascinating, but for some people that might be, you know, a bit, a bit, I feel a bit stale reading them um, because, you know, there's not much dialogue. It's more or less an account of this is what happened, but, but I, I, I love those books. Those books were, to me, were awesome. And I loved reading history books uh, in school. And I think um, an element of history and and backstory in every fantasy novel the, which i essentially see as part of the world building for me is critical for my enjoyment um you know i loved all of your books in that of course jd's yours with you know more uh, eastern ottoman empire stuff was fabulous you know eg's with more of the fey the the the, the british folklore stuff and toys of course with nigerian um you know uh, folklore i just I, to me i i eat that stuff up right mm -hmm. so well, yeah. I think what we're seeing as a theme so far is the power of fantasy when combined with something else to give it that that space to to work with, like you said. Uh, you said you, um, uh, Jen, you said earlier that it's more of a funhouse mirror. The way I usually describe it is it gives you a, a space, a, a mm -hmm. gap that it's not so close. So it allows you to look back on yourself and, and reflect exactly. on things. Yeah. Um, so fantasy has a lot of power in that sense. And we've talked about combining, you know, history with fantasy, and that somehow makes it palatable to be 
magically. But um, <laughs> something I know people talked about a lot, and I think, E.G., you mentioned it too in the description of your books, and you too as well, Jen, is that you have um, romance as part of it. And romance is considered, I think, when you talk about romance as a specific genre, it's very, the, uh, the image that comes to people's minds is formulaic, you know, mm -hmm. half naked people swooning on the cover, you know, mass market paperbacks. That's kind of the image that comes to people's minds when you say romance. But yeah. I see fantasy romance becoming more popular in like mainstream fantasy culture uh, recently, uh, or at least from my perspective. Yeah. Uh, no, so absolutely. I'm wondering if you guys are noticing that trend too, or? Yeah. So um, I, P.L. gave me an interview a while back and I went like full soapbox on it. I'm so sorry. Oh, okay. I can't help it. I can't help it. But um, Great. So, Don't apologize. <laughs> um, the interesting thing about romance is, yeah, if you're not a romance reader and you hear the word romance in any context, the immediate thing that comes to mind is probably one of two things. The bodice ripper cover from like the 1980s, 1990s, or the shirtless man werewolf cover. <laughs> And I know, I know if you don't like romance, those covers give you the heebie-jeebies. However, there is, um, there's a huge range of romance. And um, I think there was always fantasy with romance in it, either as a subplot or um, books like Juliette Marillier's, um Daughter of the Forest, which was a retelling of the Seven Swans, the first one. And um, that had a big romance thread in it. This is an older book. Some people may not know it. I highly recommend it. <laughs> um, but then I also talk about how the same things I said earlier, which is the influence of YA and fan fiction on fantasy. YA in particular and fan fiction are often romance related because somebody watched a show or read a book and the romance did not meet their need. And so they wrote their own. And so now you see those people writing a lot of fantasy and adding that romance in because that's what they want to read. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm, it is. It's its that. own thing now. Yeah. Um, I, okay. So personally I'm hugely weak for romance. I, Recently, I've been very busy. So other than reading my fellow indie authors work, um, I've been pretty much reading like very heavy academic stuff for work, or I've been reading like the cheapest romance you can find because it hits my happy spot. You know, yeah. like, this makes me fulfilled. This is like I'm vicariously living out somebody else's happiness and people want to be happy. Yeah. Um, so when when you read a romance book, they are formulaic and there's a reason for that. And it's what E.G. just said, <laughs> because yeah. pe people want a happy ending. When People want a happy it. ending. Yeah. Um, but when you go beyond that, you know, I'm I love a formulaic romance because I know exactly what I like and I kind of want to see it over and over again. But you know, when you see romance in fantasy or even in you know subsets of the romance genre itself, there's a lot of opportunity to explore complicated themes. You know, it doesn't yeah. have to be straightforward. Um, in fantasy, especially, I think you see some of this because, you know, the, the fluidity of the genre allows for so much commentary. But even within romance itself, you know, the formulaic part might stay steady, but everything around it can change. Yeah. And that means that the way the formulaic part is perceived or the message it sends can change based on the context. Um, and I always think that's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, I think fantasy allows you to put so, you know. Um, I think if you don't read romance, 
you think that the point of romance is the sex. No. And it actually is not. (laughs) It is, um, it is the emotional journey. And one of the reasons romance resonates more with women is because we do tend to really latch on to that. And this is a generalization. I am not talking about everybody. So everybody's feathers just calm down. But in general, um, women often gravitate toward that emotional journey, that internal character conflict. And romance is a very good way to look at internal conflict. How do I meet this other person on some of the most intimate ways that you can engage with another human being and come to a compromise? You know, it's exploring really internally more than you can in a lot of other um, plot arcs. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna address one comment I saw, which was John Palladino was saying to split um, romance into uh, different categories it is it's split into a million categories so, so it's just if you're not super familiar with it you may not know all of them but they're there you just mm-hmm. see a lot of the really popular ones and probably don't know how they break out well the but, other yeah. thing that's appealing to people about romance is um, it's it's character driven by definition mm-hmm. so you get to know very strongly these characters in their own right it's you know often they're not so much broader plot actors they don't necessarily get used to fulfill a goal like they are important because of who they are in relation to other people and to themselves so for people who really get into character driven plots it's a great place to find them yeah yeah and especially for me i consider myself a hopeless romantic so i'm one of those exceptions i guess i do i love romance i love reading it i love incorporating what i write um but as you both point out so so aptly it's about that um, emotional connection. It's about developing the characters because you get to, to see and learn so much about them as you see their emotions on how they react to this person that they're they're romantically involved in. Um, you know, it's a, a great. I think as EG, that's a great great way to bring out sources of conflict, mm-hmm. and um, you know, to 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 really. And conflict is what we love, right? We love the drama. We're writers. Right. We love the drama, right? That's, <laughs> right. that's that's why you're right. So, and um, but it, it doesn't have to be and. John, excellent point about categories. Like, you know, some people have a light touch with romance, but it can still be there. Tony's book yep. has a light touch with it, but I can still see it there um, in 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 some of the relationships. Um, you know, JD, obviously yours is very a very know, heavy touch. Very <laughs> upfront. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 EG, EG has a wonderful, some wonderful uh, romance uh, in in her book, and it's all about the relationship between the characters and, and really um, the the sense of pathos. Um, you know, with, with, anyways, I don't want to spoil any books here, but, but, um, <laughs> well, you're right though. Romance like fantasy has a flavor and a, um, intensity for almost any reader. Right. So it's just like fantasy that way. And so if romance is not your thing, you can probably find a romance that is a little lighter on the hot and heavy. <laughs> or if it is, then you can go in the other direction. And that, those blend seamlessly with fantasy because, you know, you can fit it in with a cleaner fantasy that's aimed at a younger audience and still have a romance that's very sweet or, you know, all the way up <laughs> into the erotica category, whatever, whatever. Your point about, you know, the different variations, like there are plenty of stories out there where sex is not the epitome of, of a loved relationship. That's not the end game. 
Those yeah. are the ones I tend to gravitate towards because I'm not super interested in reading the heavy stuff. Um, and I like those because of the emotional, um, you know, the emotional element of the relationship takes precedent over the physical part, which yeah. right, is meaningful to me. We have, you know, this is 2022. We've read some, I've read a wonderful book um, that was actually a semi-finalist for SBFBO, A Bigger Thief by Claudia Arsenault, that was, had the main character uh, was asexual, right? One of the main characters was asexual. And there was an asexual romance. And, you know, we're, 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 um, we're in a different time now where we can read uh, these things and, and it's fantastic. And, um, but yeah, I think, I think for most of us, we may or may not agree with this, but as long as the romance is integral to the plot, seems authentic, and you can understand, you know, why this is happening, why there's a need for this to happen, uh, what it adds to the story, then I think it's fantastic. I think some people have issues when they feel the romance is disingenuous or it's a plot device or, you know, but, but I think, you know, once it is rich and it, it, it adds to the, to the, the luster of, of the story. I think romance is a great thing to have in all uh, any fantasy because fantasy is about life and we try to make it, you know, it's funny, we try to make this makeup stuff seem realistic and, you know, ro romantic relationships and things like that, that's that's a big part of life, right? So I feel that if there isn't at least touched upon, I think there's sometimes you feel that something's missing from, you know, um, right. from the fantasy book. Yeah, I think, Pio, you touched on, a, on, a, on an important point there about it being integral to the story and evolving with the story. Because I think for me personally, I um, wasn't really into romance many years ago, but I think the older I got, I more had a better appreciation for it. And you see it subtly in books, um, not maybe not too heavy, but I think that's what I would tend to gravitate to. So something that really defines the story and helps to move the plot line along. I think that's what I would tend to gravitate in terms of romance. So. It's funny, yeah, I, my first, you know, kind of diving into romance, I guess, in general, was not from a romantic relationship. I got invested in character dynamics from Sam and Frodo, um, because watching two characters orbit each other and seeing, you know, how they acted when they were so close fascinated me, and it still does. Um, so, you know, even if romance isn't your thing, I... I swear I can never shake the interest in just watching people interact. And romance yeah. always seems like a great way to do that. I think Brandy makes a good point too, which is the comment that's up on the screen, is that, you know, there are many ways to bring that emotional journey. And grimdark and horror also accomplish the same thing in a different way. Um, you know, like in horror, you're seeing someone's emotional journey it's just different. It's not necessarily prompted by a close emotional relationship. It's prompted by your own pathos and what's going on. And um, I, you know, I also think that a lot of people have been wounded by bad romance <laughs> or romance that, as um, Tony said, is not necessary. It used to be kind of thrown in as a way to um, give the hero or heroine or whatever something to you know, rally for because somebody died or somebody was taken or, you know, whatever. It wasn't really an emotional journey. It was a plot piece. And that that could definitely turn you off to having a romance in a story because it's pointless. There's other ways to do that, right? So I, I'd argue that as well. Yeah, yeah that, that's a really good point. That's why I made sure to put Brandy's comment up here because it really, it really struck a chord with me when I read it because... Yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Excellent point. Yeah, 
you know, a romantic relationship is one vessel for right. the emotional journey, but there are so many vessels for it, you know, and right. it could be sibling relationships, or as you mentioned, Sam and Frodo, um, you know, it's just, there's so many different ways to explore that and romance is just one way. So it's nice exactly. to see people having more of a broad, broader or open mind to seeing it in their stories. If it's well done, of course, I'm not yeah. talking about the swooning damsel, which you mentioned, <laughs> but yeah. I think there are many stories that don't have that. Right. Know. Especially now, it's just, you know, there's so many things turning culturally in the West, at least, that having a love interest that gets fridged is unlikely. Um, and if you do it, then probably yeah. you're not, you're going to get some comments. <laughs> but um, yeah, I I don't know. I, I think that's one of the reasons that found family is such a very popular trope right now in fantasy, because people do want that emotional connection and maybe not through the romance lens, you know, but they enjoy that character driven journey. And that's another way to do it too. Like you said, friendships, which is of course the found family trope. Can't, can't help plugging EG's book here. No, with the found family, <laughs> that's just, oh man, just, yeah, just awesome. Just yeah. Awesome it, stuff, so. it fills a vicarious need, you know, you need, if you need love, if you need friends, if you need family, everyone needs things and you know, right. needing them also doesn't mean that you don't have them. It's just, you know, who can get enough of that stuff, right? So, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Give yeah. me a ragtag group of friends with all disparate personalities. I'm, I'm gonna fall in love with that book. But what's also interesting, and I think, um, having read the description of Tony's book, and I will read that thing, god damn it, soon. <laughs> but, uh, the description is very much playing with those bonds being strained as well right because at the core of your book you have two brothers you correct me if i'm wrong but two brothers who who um that relationship is some of the main issue in the story right so that's it's so interesting to see people play with it both ways right so eg your book is giving people what they need tony your book is more taking those bonds that some people might take for granted or or think you know blood is thicker than water is it really though <laughs> you know i think that's a really I like seeing it played with both ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I also, I, sorry, Taylor. Oh, no, I was just going to put a comment up, but it can wait till your comments are done. Go ahead, Pia. No, I was going to say that, you know, um, it's, it's hard to find, um, you know, books that really, I, I feel uh, there's just something so, um, inventive and original about them. And I definitely think all three of your, your books apply and, and your books have also definitely found, you know, their audiences and you, you all three of you have met with a lot of success, a lot of great reviews and even awards and things like that as, as independent authors and kudos to you on all that. How, and, and I've had the privilege of, of interviewing all three of you for my six elemental interviews blog and, and um, you know, but, but what, how have you, as this, how is this success? How have you met with all this success? How do you feel about it? Is it, is it, you know, is it something you expected? I mean, every writer I'm sure hopes that their work is going to be like that. It's going to, you know, reach an audience and, and captivate imaginations, but how have you dealt with all, and, and what do you think about the success, particularly of independent authors, such as, you know, the four of us are and, and, and the success you three specifically have achieved in the fact that, you know, it seems like indie authors are taking over the world, you know? Um, how do you feel about that? Uh, well, no, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 definitely. You no, go. no, you go ahead. Go ahead. 
<laughs> okay. Um, I, I guess for me, it's nice, but um, to be honest, even I haven't told like most of my friends, you know, it's just kind of a, a thing I do. Some of my really close friends know, my family knows, but um, it hasn't affected my life much, you know, other than you know, the royalties, which are nice. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, in, in terms of indie author success, we support each other. And I think that's something that's it's unique to the indie author scene and that's completely priceless. So yeah, we help each other succeed. Tony, go. Yeah, so in terms of indie authors, like you said, they are sort of taking over a lot of things. Um, I think it's it's now interwoven into the industry and you can see so much development and it's it's the quality of work that's being churned out because I think previously there was a lot of stigma about people that self-publish or are indie authors, but I think that's completely changed now. There's so many fantastic writers and, and so many books and it's just a sign of the time, I think. Um, in terms of success, yes, it's it's nice to get your work known and out there, but that was never really the 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 goal for me. It was more just to tell a story, because um, it's it's something that I've always had. Uh, I've been developing for many many years, and and I thought, okay, it's time to finally, you know get some courage and put it down on paper and, and send it out there, which was the most daunting thing ever. Um, and it's nice to, to have feedback and, and see what people think. And it's mainly just to share my work. I think that's, that is the fulfilling thing for me, just that people have actually taken their time out to purchase a book or read it online or whatever, whatever means they, they choose to read it and, and actually digest the story. I think that is, the most fulfilling part so it's not really about the success at all it's it's more just getting the story out there and, and increasing the awareness basically so yeah i'm with you on that i think you know for authors in general but maybe especially indie authors the having a story that you want to tell and being able to make that happen um the story is the most important part definitely success is nice yeah. but the story is why you do it yeah so i will um be contrarian <laughs> and say that I, you know, I, I think every author will say I've been writing since I was a little kid, right? Or whatever. There's a few that haven't and good on them. <laughs> but but um, I always wanted to write and certainly the story was important. But um, my, um, my sister, my little sister actually published, self-published long before I did. And um, I was like hell bent on traditional publishing and she just kept working on me until finally I was like, I wrote rain and ruin. And I was like, no publisher is going to take this. It's like, it's right in the middle of epic fantasy and fantasy romance. And it's weird. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I was a new mom and we were kind of struggling financially and I was scared. I wanted a backup in case something happened to my husband's job because he had a business at the time. And so I read all the Facebook groups and all the threads and all the things on how you do it successfully and all that stuff. And um, I worked at it and I was lucky because, yeah, it's a weird book and people like it. <laughs> um, so... I did do it. I mean, I don't think I'm going to get rich. I just wanted to not 
be in a cardboard box in the street <laughs> if something happened, you know? And I think that um, I, I just came in at a time when there were a few other people publishing at the same time and fantasy romance was really taking off right about that time. And I was lucky and there's a lot of luck involved in fantasy romance. There's, uh, there is of course skill. You can't just be lucky and have a book that's not good, (laughs) but, um, there's a timing thing, you know, Mm -hmm. and if you're lucky, maybe it takes off. And if you're not, maybe the next one will. So Mm -hmm. I think part of that, but also, you know, butt power. It's also worth acknowledging just how much legwork in the authors do because pretty much we do alone what an entire, you know, traditional publishing company would do for us if we were traditionally published. That means hiring editors, developmental, you know, copy, line, all of that. There's multiple rounds of editing. Um, That means finding beta readers. That means doing all of your own advertising, minding all of your own sales, putting it up on all of the, you know, the right distributors. It's a lot of work. Maintaining um, links and fixing typos mm-hmm. and finding cover artists and scheduling all that mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, when something goes and wrong, learning on all the platforms. Yeah, yep, or if you're wrong. doing your own, yeah, yeah. learning <laughs> Amazon, learning all those things. If you're doing yeah. your own cover, you got to learn how to do that on some graphic design. You know, like um, and so yeah, you know, it's people, people assume that indie might be an easy way out, um, but it is not. <laughs> it is not that. Yeah. So, so I was naive, I think, when I started because I, I didn't actually start writing from when I was little. That that didn't happen. It You're one of those lucky me. people that just is really good at. It. <laughs> well, well. <laughs> so for me, I started uh, three years ago. That's when I actually started writing, and I always thought you write the story and it will sell itself. But I then tried to do the traditional route and. It didn't last very long. I think I queried for maybe a few months and I just thought, you know what, there's so many brilliant self-pub authors out there, indie authors, let me educate myself and start to figure out what needs to be done, which I did. And then I still had the mentality that as long as your story is brilliant, don't worry about it until you actually start to see all the work and the commitment that's involved and like like all the authors on here have already said all the dedication to marketing all the you know typos that you have to fix and your sales and everything it's just it's a minefield it really is but it's a fulfilling one I think for me anyway so yeah it's interesting to hear you guys talk about indie publishing in that way, because as someone who's never going to be a writer, it's just not in the cards for me. I've accepted that. Um, you know, I was one of those people that when I was young, I wrote little stories and those will never see the light of day, but <laughs> we all have those. Yeah. But, but um, just hearing you talk about it from the perspective of creating content, you know, on YouTube and stuff, it, a lot of what you guys are saying sounds similar to people mm-hmm. who like Steve and I, who do this for the, the passion you know, of it, because it's so much work <laughs> when you don't have anyone else doing it for you or the learning curve of, you know, any editing software, whatever someone uses, the learning curve of making thumbnails, um, you know, marketing your channel. It just, it's nice to hear that all of us, even though we're in different realms, we share a lot of those experiences. And it's something that I can really understand, like when I hear you talk about it. Of course, it's it's different in some ways, but there are a lot of themes that I'm noticing that kind of go through. That's why we're so I grateful to people. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. 
No, I'm sorry to interrupt you, PL. I, all I was going to say was, yes, I, it's absolutely the same thing. Whenever you're doing something, you're producing creative content of any kind and you're doing it independently, it is a lot of freaking work. <laughs> there is a lot involved that nobody sees behind the scenes. And it's true mm -hmm. of almost any creative endeavor. Well, that's, what we're so grateful. Too. Yeah. Yeah. that's what we're so grateful to people like Steven Taylor, because what they do uh, to help, um, you know, highlight uh, and, and essentially help market and promote our books is is beyond invaluable. We can't thank thank people like you two enough. It means the world. And, um, you know, thank you for what you do, because, uh, you know, believe me, um, as indie authors, um, any one sale means something. And, you know, um, it, it it's something that um, without booktubers, um, a lot of us wouldn't have experienced the success that, that we've, we've had. Yeah, I'm glad you say that, um, PL, because it is, uh, when I was publishing Rain and Ruin, I went through and I contacted nearly 200 blogs and booktubers and a few would take on an indie book at that time. And so we're always really grateful when you're willing to take a chance because it is a chance at just, there's a pretty big broad range in indie publishing. And I mean, there is in publishing too, but there's just a slightly different um, homogenized standard in trad publishing. And so um, it's a chance and there's a lot of us <laughs> and we probably badger you guys too much, but we appreciate your time. It's a, well, it's funny. I'll let Steve talk to talk for himself, but I was just going to say it's a symbiotic relationship from my point yeah. of view. <laughs> but go ahead, Steve. No, I totally agree. It's a point I was going to make too. And it's funny that you mentioned about indie authors contacting bloggers and reviewers, because when I get an, an email from an agent, I don't really read it because I know it's copy and paste. But if I get one from an indie author, it's it's a different a different connection we have, and I can DM you or you know we can do things like this. You know, can't do that with most other authors, so. Yeah. It's a it is a, a two way street, but we talk about all the all the work that's involved in getting your book published and getting it out there and all this time. I wanted to ask all of you what it felt like to hit that publish button. What was going through your mind when you hit that button and it was out for the world to read? Terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is the word. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I genuinely don't remember. <laughs> She's got <I> trauma. <laughs> <laughs> Just to show you how terrifying it was for me, when I hit the publish button, I actually sat down for, I don't know, all of 10 minutes and thought, I'm not ready for this, and took it off. Bad idea. This was a bad <laughs> idea. Yeah. And we published a week later. <laughs> well, it takes a lot, right? That's putting a lot of yourself out there. Yeah. You know, a book has a lot of yourself, so... Um, we just had a couple comments about the indie books. I'm new to the indie scene, and so far, every single person has been a delight. Mm -hmm. I second that 100%. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the greatest joy of an indie author is when either a cover artist, editor, or I think that's beta reader, flakes on you. That's always <laughs> the best moment. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, it's a hazard of the job, unfortunately. I've had good experiences with cover artists and editors, but beta readers are always hard to get also arc readers just because they're just people it's not their job yeah um you know if you're working with professional and they don't act professional that sucks but it's less common yeah uh, i agree i've had good luck with my professional folks but it does happen i've heard of other people mm -hmm. cover artists flaking you know it's tough yeah. yep. it does it does take literally take a village to make a book and there's a lot of people behind the scenes that you know uh you people the other people who read your book don't see 
that have supported you and you know been essential in your book being published and um you know i think we all know who those people are in all of our lives our individual lives and and yeah shout out to all of them that you know help 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 allow us to to, to publish books so thank you and you know what if you guys any out there are indie authors who are you know hoping to publish something librarians librarians are the beta and arc readers they, yeah <laughs> go to your local libraries go to online libraries like that's your place yeah. libraries are amazing they some of the most supportive people i've met um in my indie author journey is when is and my wife is my business manager is approaching libraries to carry them up but they're always so risky yeah oh no they'll, they'll go out of their way to do anything to and they don't care whether you're oh, an independent author they don't care you know because for them books are the lifeblood of libraries and eg you know could obviously attest to that and talk a lot more about that because she's in the field but um <laughs> they're 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 all about just um you know anything to do with literature it's it's a good thing right they don't care whether you're published traditionally or not they don't care you know yeah so uh, yeah it's uh libraries are great mm -hmm. i admit it's i've been too chicken to approach a library <laughs> or a bookstore <laughs> speaking of terrifying things that's mine talking to actual people in person is kind of scary <laughs> well, it's interesting to hear libraries spoken of from that kind of perspective because for me as you know basically being on the reader side my whole life my library is also extremely important to me because i'm originally from the states but i moved to japan six years ago and if I didn't have that American library card <laughs> to get access to stories, my reading life would be so incredibly different. But with having Libby and online, you know, accessibility uh, to English books is so key for me in my reading life. And it would be wonderful, I think, if I could get more indie titles available through that service. So that's, yeah. that's really interesting. I wonder, you know, if they would be open to feedback of people wanting that because i don't think there's many in my system per se i do think that most libraries are open to readers requesting things mm -hmm. um, it can be hard because sometimes indies you have to be published through something other than amazon to for libraries and bookstores to be able to pick up your stuff Yes. Um, unless you're doing like a commission or whatever in a bookstore. So some indie authors are just on Amazon and that makes it hard. But I think I've heard from many readers that if they go request at their library, a lot of times the library will pick a book up um, to have. Yeah. And if you're pretty well in on the Ingram. Avoid... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Please go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, if you want to avoid the whole Amazon thing, because it's true. Libraries hate Amazon. Um, it's, it's a thing, but uh Ingram Spark is the main supplier to bookstores and libraries. So I'm sure that, you know, y'all know this, but and you're not there who doesn't. Um, Ingram Spark is going to be your best friend. Publish your book through there. You can do it at Amazon simultaneously. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to mention Ingram Spark and, and the distribution network that they have. They they have the, the credibility with libraries that, you know, if your books uh, distribute through Ingram, libraries will normally stock your book. Uh, same goes for if you're looking to go approach individual bookstores and for consignment deals. If your book is on Amazon only, some of those bookstores may go, eh. But if you're uh, distributed through Spark as well, they're more likely to take you on as a, a consignment deal. At least in Canada. I'm not sure it works in the US. It's, yeah, no, it's same true in the, in the States as well. Yep. Yeah, same in the UK. 
Mm -hmm. That's UK. great information to have out there. I'm sure someone's writing that down somewhere. <laughs> um, it also is worth noting that if you're on Kindle Unlimited, you cannot offer an ebook on Libby uh, and other places. There's some contracts. That's a good point, yeah. EG. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of benefits to Kindle Unlimited, but there's some disadvantages, so be careful. Yes. Do your homework if you're out there, you're planning to self-publish. You know, talk to indie authors such as the four of us or people in the industry who know and, and you know, because, you you know, we all need that help. And I'm sure all of us wish we would have had a bit more information about certain things before. We just kind of, you know, flew blind on a lot of things. And then you pick up things with your friends in the industry as you go along. And But, yeah, there's a lot of things I wish I would have known when I first started, started publishing that I know now that would have helped. Helped a lot yeah. made things easier so and readers you know if you want to see a particular indie book at your local library a lot of them do take requests so all we love to see it you know all of <laughs> when people request our books for local libraries <laughs> and i know that we we talk a lot about traditional and indie publishing but i wonder how what percentage of readers actually know the difference if they just see a book on amazon i don't i, don't, I wonder how many how many readers really know whether it's tra traditional published or indie published? So I know we're aware of it because we're involved, but I wonder how many just people who don't keep up or who aren't familiar. I, I don't know that many of them know the difference. They just know if the book is good or not, or that they enjoy right. it. I guess it depends if the person is someone who will actually look and see how the book is published, look through the, the, the fine details on Amazon, the business page to see who the publisher is. And they see Orbit, well, obviously, you know, she published them, they see, published by, you know, E.G. Radcliffe, G.D. Evans, Tony Gervato, P.O. Story, or some, you know, some, uh, some, uh, something like that, some iteration thereof. I get, but a lot, I don't think a lot of people check anymore. I think there was a time where, as, as we talked about when, I think it was J.D. that mentioned that, you know, the, the esteem of, of indie publishing was not what it is now. Perhaps people were a bit more uh, discerning and, and looking to that to make sure that what they were buying, if they were, you know, if they were, if, if indie was persona non gratis to them, they would make sure that the book was traditionally but now and because the quality of indie books are so high now the covers you know the design it, i think if you know my books are on on bookshelves in the major bookstore in canada chapters you know I've, there's a lot of indie authors on the shelf with me and but most of the books are traditionally published I'd, I'd argue that you can't tell the difference between covers or anything that or the quality of the print or anything like that they look all the same you wouldn't know unless you knew so yeah uh, Shout out yeah. to all those cover designers that are really staying on top of the trends and that can do all the, I mean, they make them look just as good as any traditionally published um, fantasy book. You know, for a while, it was kind of hard to get a good cover if you, if you were indie, because a lot of the traditional um, artists that were working on particularly fantasy books were very expensive. When I looked into getting mine done, um, I looked at some of the bigger names. I was like, well, this, I'll never pay this off, <laughs> you know? So it is, there's a lot of very talented people popping up and helping in that realm of publishing. Cause I do think that the window dressing on a book has an effect on readers. I think they look at it and they're like, oh yeah, this fits in with what I'm looking for, you know? But I don't know that they're like, is it indie? Is it trad? Unless it looks like somebody made it on paint, which is what it would look like if I made a cover. <laughs> well, that, that is an interesting point, though, in, in terms of do people actually, can they differentiate between the trad and, and, and the, um, the self-pub or indie books? And it depends on how they consume their information. So I suppose mm -hmm. 
it's what they see on social media or word of mouth. So if, say, for instance, there's an indie author or self-pubbed author that is doing particularly well and a lot of people are talking about them, um, are the consumers generally going to dig to find out if it's traditionally published or indie published? They'll probably just go and buy the book yeah. if it's been raved about. So, yeah, I think it's... That's exactly what I was going to say. Basically, what both of you said is that I can guarantee that 95% of readers do not check the published page. 95% of readers is skip right over, you know, the, maybe read the dedication and then they start the book. So um, the other thing I was going to bring up is the cover. Absolutely. The cover, I think, is the most important part. If anyone says they don't judge a book by its cover, they are a dirty liar. Yeah. <laughs> 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 So I think, you know, props out, props to the to the cover artists out there because you really, I can't tell the difference for sure. Yeah. Yeah, but Tony's point was actually too in that, you know, I mean, unless you, I mean, everybody knows, not everybody else, a lot of people know that someone like Will White is self-published because he has had so much success and he's a New York Times bestseller that it's such a big story that he is self-published. But that being said, um, some people don't know that, and they just look. People who just look at the North New York Times bestseller and say, "Okay, I mean, I pick up book from there." They pick up Will White. They just think, "Okay, great, right?" Or someone who doesn't know someone who like like Ryan Cahill is is is, is self published, or some of the the really uh, you know ex exploding indies on the scene. They're you know they're they're not going to know, and and that's and I think in a way a good thing because we're all authors, whether we're traditionally or indie published, and um, books are becoming books, which is great. And um, you know, for readers, aren't much aren't as worried as, as much as discerning between the two. And I think very much like the music industry, we talked about this on previous episodes with Paige doing, Steve telling myself, um, if if the book industry goes that way, where essentially in the future almost everything becomes indie, well, it'll be a really interesting landscape. Um, you know, I think think in the future. Uh, so we'll see. Not that I'm hoping that my traditionally published friends can't still get book deals. I'm sure they'll be able to. <laughs> Because there's a lot of great ones out there, but um, you know things are changing. So, yeah, um, you know. But I was just wondering, would you three mind giving a bit of an elevator pitch for your books or your series, just so that again, you know, I mean, you're all very popular indie authors, but just for anyone who's watching who isn't aware of what your books are about, just to kind of you know give them a little a little taste of what they can expect when they they press buy one of your books. I vote Tony goes first. <laughs> I was going to say the same with you, but... <laughs> um, so, this is another thing. I think authors in general, well, I'll speak for myself. I think we're, we're, we're good at writing books, but actually describing it is a completely different ballgame. No, that's <laughs> correct. Yeah. Accurate. Very accurate. Short, <laughs> I'd say my book is based on uh, a, a king who is a ruler of this, this uh, ancient tribe who claim that their bloodline comes directly from the gods, very proud people. And he has a brother who was banished for a crime he committed 10 years ago. So the brother has now come back to the kingdom with his eyes on the throne. The brother is aided by his mother, who is a powerful witch. Her name is whispered across the lands of the tribes. And it's all about how the king the current king is going to preserve his kingdom, preserve his heritage. So he then embarks on this journey where he decides to 
go down dubious routes, which he wouldn't tend to do, to try and ensure that he comes out on top. So it follows his story, it follows the story of the king and his children, and how the kingdom is torn apart from the various conflicts that are happening. So the different alliances, different different tribal landscapes, and it's it's um, yeah, a book really about uh, redemption and and man's ability to survive and the lengths that man will go to in order to maintain what they hold precious to themselves. So that's in a nutshell what it's about. You said you weren't good at Sounds describing amazing. it. That was great. Yeah. Sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, are you going to rock, paper, scissor it, or do you want to go? <laughs> you should go. All right. All right. Fine. Um, so I wrote an epic fantasy set in an Ottoman Empire inspired um, setting. And the first book revolves around the only child of a sultan that is, um, his mind is failing. And she's a daughter, and she's sort of in this position of being of age to be married and essentially put somebody else in power. And she doesn't want to. And so she is dealing with a council that very much is traditional in what she should do and how she should deal with a threat of an invasion from a growing empire and so she decides that she will kind of illicitly um ally with an enemy nation who has mages with forbidden death magic which is really um taboo and uh, everyone is afraid of these mages and so the rest of the books follow the same story, different characters, where she's building up a circle of these particularly powerful mages to try and um, reinvigorate magic and keep her kingdom um, autonomous. So that's that. <laughs> and there's romance. <laughs> uh, my book is loosely, you know, inspired by uh, elements of Celtic folklore. Um, it follows a young man who's living in a divided world where um, their history has resulted in about half the world being quite impoverished and the other half living in large ignorance of that poverty. Um, he's from the less fortunate half and it follows his story of not only having to navigate a world that he's not familiar with when he ends up in the white city, which is the nicer part, um, but also his own heritage because He's not who he seems. I don't know. I'm not good at this either. <laughs> but there's there's elements of fey folklore. There's elements of romance. There's some darker scenes. So if you're squeamish, maybe avoid it. Um, but I've been told it's good. It's fantastic. That was <laughs> great. You guys like did it. a great job. And great found family. Great yeah. found family. Yeah. Elevator pitches are an art. They take time, you know, <laughs> You'd think that after being asked for them so many times, yeah. there'd be something more readily at the tip of my tongue. But. Well, it's just like when people ask you as a reader, you know, what's your favorite book? And you're like, have I ever read a book in my life? I feel like I haven't in this moment. You know, it's like <laughs> the exact same feeling, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just curious. I'm just, and you know what? I, I hate, I hate to do this, but I can't help it because I'm, I'm a disturber like that. You know, um, so Taylor and Steve, if you were going to give an elevator pitch for your channel, what would you, what would you say your channel's about? That's a really good question. A really good question. 
Not cool, Pio. Not cool. How <laughs> <laughs> <Out> dare. <laughs> hmm. Do you have something, Steve, or should I try to fumble my way through one first? Um, I'm really bad at this stuff too. Um, but I would say the uh, the pitches for me that I like to talk to people. I like to have conversations, so I like to have long form discussions, like we are today. And I mostly read um, fantasy and horror, but open to anything. So it's uh, I do some reviews. Uh, I'm not very good at them, but I try. But mostly it's long form content. So I'm, I told you I'm terrible at this. That was great. Um, I'd say mine is, of course, a bookish channel focusing mostly on fantasy, although I do delve into other things. Uh, and I do a lot of reviews, whether they be mini reviews and wrap ups or TBRs. Sometimes I throw reviews in there as well, as well as individual reviews. And I do discussion based recorded videos where I put out what I think about a topic and have people comment uh, you know, their thoughts in the comments down below. And I'd say the final thing that uh, you can find most often on my channel is an infusion with Japanese life. So I'll do reading vlogs where I talk about uh, my life here as well. So it's kind of a combination vlog. And those are also quite common. So I would say you can find all of those elements on my channel. Those take so long to make. Respect, Taylor, because those are tough. Yeah, Taylor, wow. Those Look, are, and they're incredible. Check them out, guys, if you haven't seen them. They're amazing. Listen, vlogs, they're so rewarding, but the, God, they're my least favorite thing to create. <laughs> <laughs> they're so rewarding because I can watch them back and remember that time myself as well. But, whoo, you know, they're popular, though. They're very popular. Now, in, in BookTube in general, reading vlogs are, are big mm-hmm. for sure. So I feel PL, you you sort of escaped. Everyone has given uh-huh. some I get sort this guy. I want to ask the question. Well. Ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> um, uh, well, I mean, uh, my book series is is a seven book series called The Drown King Saga, and it's about uh, a, it starts out with a prince who is um, one of the members of the ruling family of my version of the Lost. Uh, realm of Atlantis, and he's very privileged, and he's very bigoted, and he's very opinionated, and but he has some some good traits, and he's also very talented, and um, the book is about, without, it's not a big spoiler, I mean, it's about my version of Atlantis, so it obviously sinks, so um, when it does sink, he manages to escape with some followers, a small group, and go across the sea from where Atlantis uh, once, once stood, and try to establish himself in a new continent that is um, very different from uh, Atlantis. Um, he is someone who, Atlantis was this period of society, very monotheistic, uh, colonial, uh, dominant naval, naval power, very sure in their own, um, you know, uh, superior over others, and he's no different. However, this continent is uh, filled with uh, mages and people who worship elemental magic and uh, warlords, and his plan is still uh, to basically recreate Atlantis and dominate, subjugate, and convert people to his religion. Well, the people in the New Continent don't want any part of that, and that obviously is going to create some issues. So um, it's about his journey and and how and if he can change some of his ways and forge alliances and survive. Much of it is a, a fight for survival for he and his pe- people, or will they be destroyed and, and the last of Atlantis fade into history? So um, that's... Uh, that's my pitch. Got some romance in there, and 
there's a central romance that's going to mean you know very very important to the to the overall series and um battle scenes um you know a lot of politics a lot of um internal you know uh, court intrigue and stuff and uh yeah that's, that's my sounds guess. awesome <laughs> it is it is actually recently i had to do an elevator pitch for pl's book um i was put on the spot near dr fantasy yeah yeah he was oh, like I'm, um i was I'm so honored. lucky to be on um on his channel but i am honored taylor oh my gosh Thank yeah, he, he was like, so can you can you do an elevator pitch? Because I've been wanting to read uh, Drowned Kingdom. And I was like, well, all right then, you know. Just... Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was a good time. Definitely a good time. Um, for, so, uh, for... Oh, I'm sorry. No, Steve. No, I was, wanted to, uh, to ask Tony, I read in your bio that you you were inspired by ancient civilizations. And I wondered which ones were uh, which ones were particularly stood out that were inspirations for you. Yeah, interesting question. So for me, it was mainly um, the Greek uh, sort of civilization. And like like Piel, he's um, had the privilege of meeting Miles Cameron. I, I love his books. And I think that's what really sparked it for me, because, you know, reading about ancient Greece and some of the characters there, that's where I sort of drew a lot of inspiration. And also the, the Roman Empire, because I've, I've read so many of them. And a lot of the books that there's there's so many versions and variations of those sort of civilizations so i thought actually there isn't a lot about african civilization in similar times so that's what i've tried to incorporate into my writing so that's what that's what led me to develop the story so it's drawing from all those elements and also things like with the greek gods and and whatnot i wanted to showcase that there are a lot of african gods who are very similar to the greek gods um and bring that to the forefront. So that's what I've used to develop my my book. Yeah. And for JD and Ia, for EG, has was what were things that inspired you for your stories? Um, so I uh, worked in the embassy in Beirut for a little while, and I uh, kind of throughout the Middle East, I spent a little time in Jordan and. Cutter and um, also Iraq and Kuwait. But anyway, um, I really fell in love with Lebanon. And it's a very interesting place. It's a Mediterranean country. I think in the US, if I say Beirut, it conjures a very specific image and a very specific sort of feeling. And I, um, I just loved the country so much. And it has an incredible history. Um, there's a site there that is the only continuously occupied site, <laughs> the longest continuously occupied site in the world. And um, it's been through empires and wars and all kinds of things. And the people are warm and wonderful and friendly and um, the country is beautiful. And I just really loved it there. And I've always been a fantasy reader. So I was like, what would happen if, I set something here and then I have elemental magic in my um, books and there's six variants of that. The four that you could probably name very easily. And then I added in creation and destruction. And what I was examining was this idea of balance between those. So creation and destruction that you can't have either one, 
without the other and then the same all around essentially this wheel and so when i am looking at the conflicts in my book they're all based on that um and i it just fit really well with that particular setting and i i love fantasy but i do get tired of the same cultural setting and i I'm crazy about all the new stories and getting to see these glimpses of different geographies and different religions and different gods through the, you know, the um, fantasy setting. I just love it so much. And um, so I reflected that as best I could in this series. So that's what, that's what inspired me. Um. I think for me, I was inspired a lot by stories I'd heard when I was growing up. Um, a, a lot of, you know, fairy tales, so maybe that's where it came from. But um, by fairy tales, I mean specifically stories about the Fae um, in Ireland, the British Isles. Um, actually, even there were Celts in France, but um, the Bretons. Anyways, um, that sort of Fae narrative um, was influential to me. And then as I actually got into naming the characters, I got even more inspiration because um, names have meaning, obviously. And as I researched, you know, the history of those names, um, I sort of began to piece together not only the identities of the characters, but their roles in the plot. So it was a net of, of the sort of background matrix of this, this story landscape I'd grown up in, plus, um, you know, research of the history of the names that, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, it's funny too, when, when you mention, um, I think we all have a fascination with folklore, with, with, um, things like that and, and empires particularly have always fascinated me. And I love Tony, to Tony's point, you know, um, you know, many people have heard of obviously the Roman Empire, etc. Um, you know, but but when it comes to African uh, empires, in particular, the Mali Empire, this Kodo Caliphate, the Oyo Empire, the Benin Empire, which I know, you know, in Tony's book, it's 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 largely um, Nigerian uh, inspired. It's like it's just so great to see the richness of all these other, um, you know, all these other empires and all these other cultures coming into to fantasy today. And indie authors, I think, are the vanguard of, of, of you know, JD's, you know, Ottoman-inspired and EJ's with the Faya of bringing all these these other rich cultural, uh, mythological things regarding uh, fallen empires into, you know, Atlantis for me was big, like like Tony um, said, the Greek the Greek and Roman mythology stuff was big too, but but it's great to see, you know, as, as JD had mentioned, all these other uh, places in the world that now we're really getting into them um, you know, and, and we're seeing the richness of, of, of the entire entirety of history rather than more just the medieval, uh, you know, Right. Focus. And I think we, all the way back to the beginning, seeing a glimpse of those things through fantasy, you know, a genre that you love can open up a whole interest in the actual history, the actual setting, the actual people and culture. And I think that that's a, kind of a powerful thing. And I, that's one of the things I love about fantasy as well. Okay. I think uh, India publishing has been uh, critical in getting those stories out there because, you know, traditional publishers may not want to take a chance on, on a book that they don't see succeeding. So I think indie publishing has really helped propel those stories out and get them out. And so we can all 
you'll enjoy them. But I did want to ask EG about, because uh, I had heard that you made sacrifices to the writing block deities, and I wanted to see if that actually worked or not. And wanted to share your share your secrets with us. <laughs> that was mostly a joke, but um, I'll be honest, <laughs> I, I definitely hit some points there where I was like, it's gotta be, you know, gotta go for a walk in nature or whatever. Soak it in. Yeah, I uh, was not actually making sacrifices to any deities, but the thought crossed my mind. I'll be real. Yeah, I wasn't a load up on almonds and red wine, but you know, just yeah. making sure. Those are some things I was eating, to be honest. Yeah. We just had a couple comments here. Oh, hold on a moment. Uh, my cousins grew up in Lebanon. I've never been there myself, but I feel a connection anyway. Guess I'm gonna have to buy your books now. Oh, that. Well, you as go. long as you like romance, you are <laughs> all set, my friend. Yeah, Lebanon's incredible. If you can, I highly recommend. You know, it can be a little fraught. Be safe, but it's a it's a great it's a great place. So. Usually, before we close out these episodes, uh, depends on whose channel is hosting. If Steve is hosting, he has his closing <laughs> question that he likes to ask. Um, and then on my channel, I have one that I like to ask as well. Uh, so my question that I usually ask is, clearly all of us like the idea of history or folklore or mythology. We like the idea of of you know looking into the past right and as the source of things and i'm pretty obsessed with origin stories because of that and i always like to ask our guests what was a story in your life that you think inspired you to be the author or the avid reader or the, the story lover that you are today and i say story not necessarily book you know it could have been a, a video game that you played or a tv show that you watched or a movie but some story that you think has has kind of stuck with you and made you what you are today in the world of, of storytelling. Um, if there's any that stick out to you guys in your life. Shall yes. I go first? Yes, you should. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, um, I lived for about 12 years in Nigeria. Um, so through the ages of six till about 18. Um, so a lot of my informative years were actually being immersed in that culture. And I think one of my earlier uh, memories is there was this particular TV show called Tales by Moonlight. And in that show, it's like very, very crude, traditional, where you have like a village, a typical village in Africa, and someone will tell stories and all the kids would sit around the fire and all these stories were so you know fantastical it's about you know um some mythology and some other bits and pieces and things that would really scare kids now but i think that that sort of stuck with me and it was the the art of telling the story and engaging with people on that sort of level and i think that's probably where it sparked for me that i would like to sort of tell stories um yeah, so I, th I think I had to think about that. It, it just came to me now, actually. So yeah, for me, that's that's probably where it started from. Um, right. I grew up with BBC's Merlin. Um, that show is, all the CGI is terrible. That's like the best show in the whole world. Um, but I absolutely adored it and I still do. And as I got older, I started, you know, researching the history that it was actually based on like the Arthurian romance and 
um, and seeing where they took liberties because they took a lot of liberties and they made this fantastic story out of it. Um, and so I just, you know, I got kind of hooked on the idea that if they can make something so amazing with this material, just by synthesizing from all of these different places and, and making what they want with it, maybe I could too. Um, and storytelling was already something I had an interest in from a very young age. So it was kind of the spark, I would say. Um, that one's hard for me. I feel like there's all these little threads that wove together that became what I like to read, but there is a book that's stuck with me a really long time and it's a dark, it's a dark book. I'm not even sure that it would be, I, th I think if, if you read it today, most people, sorry if there's a baby screaming in the background, <laughs> welcome to my life. Um, but, uh, it's called Deerskin by Robin McKinley, and it's uh, it's based on an old French folklore I think called Donkey Skin, and it's um it's pretty interesting. It's about this princess and she runs away from an abusive father and um and she comes back eventually, and it's it's just dark and it was one of the, I read it pretty young. I read a lot of things inappropriately young. <laughs> that, that's how I grew up reading. But, um, but there's just something about Robin McKinley's particular voice in that book. Um, it very atmospheric. It's the other, um, the other person that writes like that is, um, Juliet, uh, Malrelier. I cannot say that. Sorry. <laughs> but, um, there's just this kind of gloomy, atmospheric feeling. And now I don't write like that really, but um, it just really permeates what I think about when I'm writing this immersive feeling of place and story and personality. And I think it was the first book I read like that because it was very mature compared to what I've been reading up to that point. I love this question because every single answer is always so different. <laughs> yep. So different. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate all of you for coming on. Uh, you've all sold me on all of your books. <laughs> so so those will all be added <laughs> to the TBR if they aren't already. Thank They're you wonderful. Me. They're wonderful. Trust me. They're amazing. Yeah, they're reading mountains. Yeah, I definitely have expanded my TBR list. <laughs> so thank you for that, you guys. It never ends. It never no, it ends. Doesn't. Steve and it's I always ridiculous. complain. We always complain because we do it to each other and then we have these interviews and then it happens again. It's just <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a good problem, I suppose. Uh, yeah, exactly. It could be worse. Yep. Right. Um, so before we go, if anyone watching would also like to add your books to the TBR uh, or want to look into you guys, you know, just as people. Uh, where can they go to find you? Where can they go to find stuff that you have in the works and, and you know, new books that they can look for from you? Where should they go to look? So I am going to age myself and say I'm most active on Facebook. <laughs> I have a group there called Readers of the Wheel, and I'm also in a group called Indie Fantasy Addicts. And um, mm -hmm. Any fantasy addicts is a fantastic place to hang out, by the way, if you can stomach Facebook. <laughs> um, it's great. Um, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as JD Evans Books, and that is also my website. I'm E.G. Radcliffe on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. 
Um, and I also have a website, egradcliffe.com. My books are available, Amazon, Waterstones, Barnes and Noble, most distributors, yeah. So I am also on most of the major platforms. So on Twitter, I'm T Debajo. Um, on Instagram, it's D-E underscore B-A-J-O. Uh, same on Facebook. And my website is uh, D-E slash Bajo, B-A-J-O um, dot com forward slash books. And similar to EG, I'm on Amazon, Waterstones and a number of other online stores. Just before I let my co-hosts also say their piece, I want to say that I will be sure to have everyone's at least Amazon link for their book in the description down below if anyone wants a one-click access to, to the books we've been discussing today. So that will certainly be available. Um, so my wonderful co-hosts, would you like to tell people, I can never point, I just should just do this at this point and you guys know <laughs> what I'm talking about. Um, but if my wonderful co-host could give their their little spiel about where people can find you, if they, they don't follow you already, maybe Steve and MPL. Sure. Uh, I can be found on YouTube at Steve Talks Books or at pagedoing.com as the two best places to find me. Sorry, a bit of a longer pitch. Uh, you can find me uh, on the Forgo blog where um, Steve, myself, and Dara are all um, bloggers as well. And uh, Taylor and I are assistant editors. So uh, watch out for all the SBFOs, SBFBO stuff, the current contest at eight. We're now into the final round. Exciting, exciting. So you're going to see finest reviews from us coming soon. And JD, of course, and uh, Tony and EG know all about that because I believe Tony's currently in the contest and EG has been. And JD, of course, won the previous SBFBO. Um, uh, you can also find my website, www.plstore.com. Uh, that's more stuff for information about the series. I also do an uh, interview called Six Elemental Interviews, Six Questions to Creatives, of which I've had the honor of having Tony, EG, and JD all uh, interview. Um, you can also uh, follow me on Twitter. That's where I'm most active. Uh, PLSTRIT writes. Same with Twitter. Uh, sorry, sorry, same with Facebook uh, and Instagram, although I'm most active on Twitter. And finally, big shout out to our wonderful leader, Beth Tabler at beforewegoblog.com and all her support. So. All right. Thank you very much, you guys. It's been a very fun talk. Oh, yeah, no. thanks for yeah. coming. We love doing this. It's a delight. <laughs> <laughs> um, we just have excellent show. Thank you all. Thank you for coming by. Hello. Halo's, Halo's great, by the way. Halo's awesome. Hello, Halo. Thank you for coming by. Uh, if you're watching this, you probably know who I am, but just in case, if you click the link from Twitter or something and found yourself suddenly on my page, my name is Taylor. My uh, channel name is Made Between the Pages. Uh, you can find me here, of course, uh, on Twitter as well, or as PL mentioned, I do reviews over on Before We Go blog uh, as an assistant editor. Uh, I think those are probably the main places that you can find me nowadays. Um, Sorry, we had another comment. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, once again, thank you everyone for coming and thank you everyone in the chat who's watching or if you're watching it back later, thank you for taking your time to be here. Uh, you know, we, we love doing this and and we're just excited to keep doing so. so. Go buy those books. Tony DeBaggio, <laughs> E.G. Radcliffe, J.D. Evans, are all fantastic. I've read some of them. 
amazing. You see my reviews on Goodreads. They're great books, so go buy them. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Thanks, That's Phil. a good note to end on. Thanks, everyone, for stopping by. Pleasure see to meet you all. Thanks.